Hello and welcome to Living Being. I'm Patrick Randall. I'm Chris Park. I'm Verity Sharp. This is the podcast where we talk about everything and anything to do with bees. week hey good thank you yourselves yeah good yeah really good really still enjoying this amazing weather so this is what beginning of nearly beginning of june and i was noticing my bee moment of the week um so i think it is mining bees or solitary bees in footpaths so really compacted footpaths that i'm walking with the dog every morning and i'm seeing these tiny holes and um, our son, aged sort of 11, so a little bit closer to the ground, thinks that they're kind of ants. But I don't know. Could they be bees? Could they be solitary bees? Certainly could, I think. Yeah, we, we have similar holes in the ground surrounded by a little bit of spoil. And these tiny little minor bees come, come, come out and, and, and whiz off. And then you might not see them for another 10, 20 minutes. And, and uh, if it was an ant hole, I think you'd see ants just coming and going all the time, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's true, actually. That is true. So they're basically going in there and laying their eggs and and, um, and plugging up the whole, you know, coming out backwards kind of thing. Is that what they're doing? There's no nest in there, is there? This is a, a single bee at work. Yes, but where you find one, you find others. So you find like a, a, a lot of single bees all together in the same area, I suppose, like a single bee village, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, uh... There's a bank near here, actually, where which goes down onto a road. And every year at a particular time, that's absolutely covered in bees. In fact, you can hear it's almost like a swarm of honeybees, yeah. the sound of it. And then you might see um, the male bees at the entrance of these holes, you know, waiting to um, pounce on a, on a female that comes out and, <laughs> and mate with her. And it all gets incredibly sort of frenzied activity at certain times of year. Oh, sounds a bit like a nightclub, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to tell you, my bee moment this week was was on the Buddleia globosa. And it was the, these lovely spherical, I don't know, sort of thumb-sized golden orange flowers full of, and it's actually, it's actually a, a, a collection of lots of different nectaries and different flowers. And just noticing how good bees are at sharing. So there's a bumblebee on it and a honeybee on it. And just all kind of, you know, just nuzzling past each other, going to different nectaries. And I thought, oh, look, bees can be good at sharing. That's a really good point. So, the, so they're not, I've never noticed bees fighting, but can they? Yes, you can see uh, a bee hovering over something, another bee sort of coming in and, you know, sort of nudging it off like a ice hockey player or something. And, and uh, I've, seen that, I've seen that happen a few times. Yeah. I guess it depends how how much of a nectar flow is on, doesn't it? There are many factors involved. Where the bee's from, if it might be from a, the same colony, they might be okay. If it's, I don't know, it's, it's fear that breeds aggression, isn't it? And obviously there was not much fear on that flower at that moment. Yeah, nice bit of cooperation. And yeah. you mentioned Sam, Patrick, which is what we're going to be talking about. Well, our interview for this um, episode is all about Sam. But have you had a bee moment at a all? A bee moment? Um, well, a couple of things spring to mind. The, the, the trying to notice when forage is out and when it's available. Brambles seem to be out earlier. You've been busy with swarm collecting, haven't you? I, I liked your tiny swarm. The moment. tiny swarm. You picked up a tiny swarm. I was thought swarms were huge, but no. There have been lots of swarms. I think there have been lots of swarms, particularly just 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 in the recent couple of weeks. And uh, we we're actually looking for a swarm for a for a, a Russian hive that we're trying to get a swarm into. And um, we did picked up a little swarm, but that would probably would have been a cast swarm. So that would have been like a virgin queen. Um, a later swarm than the main swarm. The main swarm goes out with the original queen and uh, and disappears with half the bees. And then sort of half the bees that are left or a, or a, a small number of the bees that are left uh, may go out with a virgin queen. So that must have been easy to spot the queen in that swarm. Did you see her? I didn't see her. I didn't see her, no. I'm not... <laughs> <laughs> I, I I find with the, with these things uh, that I'm so intent on certain aspects of you know having done it doing it for sort of almost the first time, um, yeah. That until I I suppose until I get a bit more practice what I'm doing I won't be able to stand back. But I did did stand back and watch them go in and try and look out for the queen. But she must yeah. have, she must have uh, she must have gone in quite quickly or something. But uh, yeah. 
yeah, yeah. And still with half a swarm, we're still talking 20,000 then? 25,000 bees? I don't know, 10 or 10,000. Oh, okay. uh, a mere 10,000. It, it did seem quite small, but, uh, and of course they'll they'll find it harder to to get going. It'll be a bit uh, be a bit more more of a task for them. Often these car swarms don't 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 really survive in. The, would you say in the in the wild, Chris? They they can succumb to wasps, and but you know nothing's wasted. The wasps have a great time, and the woodpeckers and the rodents who might benefit from their from whatever efforts they have they have made. You know, it's all good medicine, as mm. we know. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes sometimes in the in the right situation with a you know if they find a place they can protect very well then they can do okay we can help them of course you can unite them with another colony or feed them or there are things that can be done to help them and uh yeah, yeah. so uh yes we can be of help uh, in the wild it's uh it, it could be it's more of a lottery uh, yeah I'm stumbling for words, but it could be a lottery. That's one, a bee lottery. So this lot have got a new Russian hive. So that'll be interesting. And I'm sure Russian hives is something that we'll come back to, won't we, on the podcast? Because there's all these different designs of hives, which can get quite confusing. But look, what are we doing today? We are talking to Dr. Martin Benshik, who uh, is a is a brilliant, uh, entertaining and very knowledgeable uh, scientist uh, from Nottinghamshire University. I think, do you remember which department he's in, Patrick? Verity, you can remember? Um, science and technology. I think he's a, he's a uh, associate professor there in the science and technology department. Yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, yeah labelled as a scientist, but just seems to be, he's got his finger in all sorts of pies, not least that he's married to a musician, isn't he? Yes, right. And and he's particularly wise, wouldn't you say? He's got this, he's got a certain air of, uh, of, um, wisdom and he's got, he's got a great aspect on life in general i think he's a he's a he's a good person to speak to and to yeah. real enthusiasm for for his subject and for anything connected with bees but for our purposes we're very much talking to him about the sounds that bees make don't we and this gets quite fascinating should we hand over to him i should mention that when we spoke to martin um uh we spoke to him on skype and uh he had his window open and we had a lovely bird song in the background. Nice. We like that. We all wish we were outside more. Um, <laughs> let's hear from him, shall we? Martin Benchik. Hello, Martin. Hello, good morning. Good morning to you. Hi, Martin. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Chris? Great, thank you. Yeah, really good. Thank you, you two know each other, don't you? Yes, well, we've met and, and had a bit of correspondence. I'm still waiting for my bottle of mead, Martin. <laughs> and uh, I have fully consumed yours. Uh, <laughs> good, good. I've had a go at it, uh, Chris, and uh, I ruined it with my uh, yeast. Oh, that's the worst thing to do is put in a yeast. <laughs> you know, uh, wild fermentation is a... Uh, some people consider it to be risky, but I've, I've, uh, I would recommend it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm trying not to purchase the commercial one. The first one I did, I did it with uh, just grapes and uh, it didn't work well. So I'm trying to get better natural oh, yeast. Oh, I see. Yeah. And your, your father is a is a master mead maker, is he not? Uh, he would be absolutely delighted with your expression. I would agree. And uh, yes, uh, the one I've promised is the one from my dad. Yes, that one I can send to you. Yes. Yeah. And, and, he, and he lives in France. Is that right? Where, whereabouts? Yeah, he lives in uh, Lyon. His bees are in the Jarnu area, perhaps half an hour drive uh, west uh, from Lyon. It's a winemaking uh, area and uh, his bees are there and that's where he makes his uh, his mead. But originally he's a Hungarian person. Both my mum and dad are Hungarian and uh, beekeeping is a huge thing in Hungary. Brilliant. A friend of mine is Slovakian, you know, and we were talking about his grandfather recently, how he... he um, he had a strange job. He he took saffron to Russia, and he and he was a interesting person for everybody to know because he went far and wide into Russia. And I said to um, Ivan, I said, "Oh, was he a beekeeper?" He said, "Well, you know, everybody had bees in those days. You know, just everybody did. Everybody had a kind of you know food medicine cabinet in the garden. And today is so different, isn't it?" Yeah, I think uh, both Slovakia and Hungary are very very. Uh 
proactive with uh, beekeeping, partly because of the uh, density of acacia trees. There's an extraordinary amount of forests of acacia, both in Slovakia yeah. and in, in Hungary. And uh, the density of bees per person, I think, is the highest in Europe, in Hungary and Slovakia. It's amazing the amount of experts uh, that you meet. There is one big... Uh, issue associated with that is that uh, when there is a problem with uh, fowl brood then uh, it's, uh, it's it's a national disaster then because it's uh, it becomes an epidemic and that's the big problem in having so many honeybees in, in one country yes yes so the kind of uh, i mean an isolated country too so uh in england we say that bees buzz or they hum what do they say in france or, or hungary the word for it. Yes. Oh my God, you're challenging me now. Let me think. Uh... So, for example, so, so, some places they might say they go zoom, 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 or uh, you know, the onomatopoeic sound for a frog in Britain is croak, but in in uh, in France it might be something different. You know, they might go bleep, 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 or something. <laughs> Or do, be, or, do, or do bees bees just buzz all over the world, don't they? Well, I mean, there must be something different. <laughs> the sound the child would say, both in Hungary and yeah. France, would be bzz, bzz, it would be the same sound. But as, as for the verb, as for the correct verb they would use, I am speechless now. I actually can't find it. <laughs> That's fine. Maybe there isn't one. <laughs> Maybe there isn't one. So did you, did, were your, your, your sort of first memories of, of bees then, Marta? I mean, you just basically grew up with them, did you? you like from the minute, is, is, can you remember a time when you didn't have bees in your life? No, you're absolutely right. I, uh, I grew up with them. My dad was already a beekeeper when uh, I was a, a little boy. And my first uh, memories of it are most uh, unpleasant. It was uh, helping my dad on the apiary, being scared of being stung and then being stung and then helping with the extraction of the honey. It was hard work, but I had the, uh, the hope and uh, the true uh, reward of the income I would do when I sold uh, the honey. But yes, uh, I have been surrounded by bees uh, at a very early age, and my early memories of it are not particularly pleasant. <laughs> and I think uh, when you are uh, little and when you are surrounded by stinging bees, I suspect most people would be put off. So uh, in my experience, uh, most people who start gaining an interest uh, into bees, particularly honeybees, in my experience, they tend to be quite uh, grown up because uh, of this barrier of being stung and the unpleasantness of dressing up in a fully being fully kitted in the middle of the summer. It's something very mad to do. If you're a young person, it's I think it's difficult to uh, to appreciate why someone would do that. So was there a kind of Damascene moment for you? So presumably you went off and got into you know, your scientific career and then did you come back to bees at a certain point and marry those two things together? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I uh, became a physicist and I became a, a scientist at the university, did PhD, etc. Absolutely nothing to do with uh, honeybees. And in the meantime, whilst I started my uh, scientific career, my dad uh, kept uh, being uh, involved in making his own experiments. So he has always uh, enjoyed experimenting with honeybees, engaging with them uh, in, a way, in ways that are not told in textbooks, just trying his own things. And I've always uh, discussed with him his experiments and why he would do this and that. And then uh, I would say in my 30s, I actually became involved in one of his experiments, and that was the, the beginning of my change of behavior, change of attitude, and that was the start of me being involved with uh, honeybees, uh, with enthusiasm and uh, with joy. So what was that experiment? So uh, what happened is that um, I was uh, rang up by uh, an academic at the university. This is in uh, 2003. And uh, the university was closing down uh, a whole department of engineering, civil engineering. And uh, civil engineers, uh, amongst other things, uh, are uh, experts in measuring vibrations, partly because of bridges, partly because of uh, stainless steel structures. But civil engineers are experts in uh, vibration and vibration monitoring. And the university was closing down this uh, department 
Uh, and uh, an academic rang me up uh, telling me that there were uh, accelerometers, they're, they're the devices uh, to, to measure vibrations. He told me, Martin, there's accelerometers in the skip. Would you like them? Here they are. I'll give you a lift, etc. So I said, yes, I would like them. We drove together, went into the skip. I recovered these uh, accelerometers from the 1970s uh, and uh, decided to try to put them on my uh, father's hive in France to see whether I could pick up the vibrations of the bees from within the box of the, of the honeybee hive. And that was the start of uh, my uh, new interest in honeybees. And uh, I am here now speaking to you with uh, several major research grants, uh, all stemming from that uh, very early experiments we did with accelerometers I had uh, recovered from a skip at the university campus. That's, that's fascinating, Martin. And you've been researching and listening to bees ever since, I guess. And as, as a beekeeper myself, I'm sure you know that, uh, you know, we know a few things about bees. Most beekeepers know that queens pipe. They make a sort of toot, toot, toot noise. When they've emerged, and sometimes sometimes a quarking noise or a kind of more of a muffled pipe when they're still in their in their queen cell, and that you might you know if you kind of jog a hive and it makes this nice hiss noise and settles down again, you know they're quite healthy. But if they if they sort of moan and roar, then they're they're unhappy. And other than that, I think most beekeepers just just. Uh, don't know much about the sounds that bees make or the vibrations that bees make, but but you perhaps know more than anyone in the world about what bees are doing with their with their sounds and vibrations, and and, uh, and so we'd love to hear more about that. So it it has become my focus. Uh, you're absolutely right, uh, Chris. The sounds and vibrations of bees have become my focus, and that's my main uh, bread and butter uh, on a daily basis. So uh, there are uh, sounds and vibrations that we are extremely uh, familiar with because we sense them easily. So uh, the sound of your speech, you can sense very easily. If you have a, a cat on your lap and it starts purring, you can feel the vibrations on your stomach or on, on your hands if you put your hands on, on the cat. So things that are uh, our dimensions, we're very familiar with and uh, people have a lot of experience uh, of it. Then the other extreme is uh, extremely small things that are too small for us to appreciate. So we have no direct uh, appreciation of uh, bacteria, of things that are microscopic because uh, we don't feel them and uh, it's not part of our uh, everyday life. And then honeybees are at the boundary. So honeybees are big enough that uh, you can see them, you can handle them. And a box is probably half a meter by half a meter by half a meter. It's... Uh, very much the dimension of the kind of objects we are familiar with. So uh, there are a lot of things about honeybees that we perceive and that we can relate to, but uh, they are uh, at the boundary of the size where there are things that we miss coming from honeybees. So there are signals, there are sounds and vibrations that are actually too faint uh, for us to perceive. And even the most experienced uh, beekeeper will not have heard some of the signals we have uh, measured. So honeybees are uh, at a length scale which is uh, sometimes perceivable by us and sometimes not. And so my research is uh, uh, overlapping with both. So you mentioned the queen pipes, you mentioned the hissing of the bees. These are things that uh, beekeepers will have experienced by their own ears. And that's the kind of things we do measure and we do explore. And there are also other signals which are more faint, which are harder to perceive. In fact, you cannot perceive them. But with very sensitive accelerometers, we do pick them up. And so uh, that's where uh, part of my excitement comes from, is to uh, plow into this uh, new information that is uh, too small, too faint for uh, most people to perceive. But they exist. They are there. And there is a rich world of communication taking place in, uh, by vibrations amongst honeybees that we are vastly unaware of, even myself. I am flattered that you call me a, a world expert. And indeed, uh, I have read a lot about it, but uh, I probably have only just uh, scratched the surface of the sound and vibrational signals that uh, honeybees use uh, amongst each other to communicate. It's like there's a whole 
thousands of conversations are going on that we're just unaware of. All these these little nuances of what the bees might be saying, if it is communication, I imagine it is, and uh, and and vibrate. You know, we hear about comb vibrating, and you know the, the many so many things that that are going on inside that you are you're kind of your your sort of science is penetrating into the into the mysteries of the hive, and that's just so fascinating. So if, if you want, we can have a quick chat about the queen pipes because I've just had a paper accepted about it, uh, Chris. Yes, please. I mean, that, I mean that, that is, if there's any any knowledge that most beekeepers have about what noises their bees might be making. You, know, the, you hear stories of old bee masters sitting by their hives, sort of listening and looking and learning. And when you hear queens piping, it can be a signal that they might be getting prepared to swarm. So it's a, it is a useful, a useful piece of information for beekeepers. So, so queen pipes are uh, sometimes heard by uh, beekeepers. You ha- to hear a queen pipe, you are better off uh, opening the hive. But if you are lucky, you will hear a queen pipe uh, outside, uh, outside the hive. And right now, we are uh, chatting to each other in May. And May is the month where uh, queen pipes are likely to be heard. In fact, I heard some yesterday. I went to my bees and I heard them. So it's a signal that is uh, just about hearable, uh, even if you don't uh, open the hive. And it's um, an exceptional signal in that uh, it is made of duets. So a lot of honeybee signals come and uh, they are not followed by anything particular. But queen pipes are actually duets. So you have a queen uh, producing uh, a pipe and it is answered uh, a few seconds later, or less than that, by another queen. So it is quite uh, exciting and quite spectacular in, in that uh, if you listen to queen pipes, it's uh, definitely uh, in the form of uh, duets. And it's a mystery as to why they take place, and it's a mystery as to why uh, they do these uh, duets. And uh, in a lot of textbooks, you will find... Um, the uh, interpretation that it's uh, queens challenging each other or sizing up each other. And um, there is another interpretation which uh, we have dug out and uh, which we prefer. And uh, we have uh, nearly a proof of this new uh, interpretation. And uh, we believe that queen pipes, which are duets indeed, have nothing to do with queens communicating with each other, it's actually queens communicating to the colony. And uh, what uh, we have found is that um, the queen that is uh, born first is uh, tooting, and uh, the tooting is uh, a very long pipe followed by short bursts. So let me uh, produce uh, my own (laughs) version of a tooting now. Here we go. (laughs) Tooting for you by Martin. It goes... like this, whilst uh, the other queens reply by quacking, where there is no long burst at the start. So the quacking sounds more like this. Wah, 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 a bit like a a duck. And so the tooting queen uh, swarms after a few days of tooting. And what we found is that uh, immediately after the swarm, the tooting disappears, and that makes sense because the queen has left. And what we find is that systematically, a few hours after the swarm, another tooting takes place in the colony. And to us, it is the proof that uh, the tooting actually indicates to the colony that they have a mobile queen. And when the mobile queen's swarms, the tooting disappears, which makes sense, that indicates to the colony that they do not have a mobile queen anymore. And that triggers the worker bees, not the queen. It triggers the worker bees to release another queen. And this way, the colony manages to uh, release in a timely manner one queen at a time for subsequent swarms uh, to take place. So this is our latest interpretation of the queen pipes, which has already been mentioned in the past, but we think we have solid proof of it because of our long-term recordings, uh, Chris. Excellent, Martin. I, I didn't know you could speak B. Really good. Can, you, <laughs> can, we hear that one more, can we hear that one more time? 
Of course you can. Which do you want? The two teams? Oh, both, both of them, yes. Both of them, please. Yeah, They're excellent. <laughs> Here's a tooting for you. Ooh, 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 ooh. And this is followed uh, very, very uh, rapidly by a quack or two or three quacks. And here's a quacking. Quack, 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 quack. And this can take uh, 10, 15 seconds, sometimes 20 seconds long train of uh, quacking. How, how are they actually doing that, Martin? I mean, what, what actually is producing that sound? I mean, their vocal cords? I mean, you know, I've, I've just always thought that the buzzing is, is kind of wings and, and all of that, but they're actually producing these vocally, these sounds? OK, uh, very good question. Uh, I have uh, vocalised for you these uh, signals as sound, and you have heard them through your ears as uh, sounds. Originally, the bee does not produce these as a sound. So uh, the bee is vibrating the honeycomb or vibrating the substrate on which uh, she resides. That produces a vibration in the, in the substrate on which she is. And because uh, bees like us live in air, the vibrating substrates provides the sound and then you can hear it uh, as, uh, as sound. But the bee itself doesn't produce a sound, except when she flies, then of course she flaps her wings and she can't avoid uh, making a sound. But otherwise, uh, bees don't tend to produce sounds. In fact, bees don't have uh, eardrums, and uh, we believe they are grossly deaf, but uh, they produce vibrations, and they are exquisitely sensitive to uh, vibrations. So what I have vocalized for you uh, with my uh, vocal cords is actually a vibration. If you're lucky enough, you will hear the vibration from the bee, but it's a very faint uh, sound, but it is a strong vibration. And how does the queen and bees produce it? Uh, there is no um, solid work about proof for this, but a lot of uh, scientific work, including mine, suggests that it's the flying muscles that they use without flapping their wings. So honeybees, the queen and the drones and the worker bees have extremely strong uh, flying muscles, and uh, they can trigger these muscles without flying. They can put their wings along their body, keep the wings along their body, and they can still stimulate the muscles a little bit like you shivering. Mm. And uh, this way they can produce extremely strong vibrations without taking off, in fact, uh, without their wings uh, exhibiting any particular motion. And I think, and a lot of scientists think, that a lot of the vibrations they are capable of producing probably originate from their flying muscles whilst they keep their wings along their abdomen, along their body. So, so it is, I mean, it's just absolutely kind of mind-blowing, um, trying to get my head around this, but all this talk of, of vibrations and pipes and music and sound, and your wife is a musician, so I imagine um, these two things are coming together in your household quite a bit. She plays cello, is that right? Yes, uh, she's a professional cellist. Have you managed to involve her in your experiments? So, um, uh, so that's, uh, that's a very good question. Why? Because uh, I know a lot of beekeepers and uh, you become very much involved with uh, beekeeping. It takes a lot of your time. It takes a lot of your effort uh, when you become uh, involved with it. And if your wife is not on the same wavelength as you, you are in trouble. And if, <laughs> if you're the lady and your husband uh, is not on your wavelength, then uh, you are in trouble. So uh, besides uh, that, I do love uh, music and I do love listening to my bees as much as I love uh, listening to music. And um, my wife has always been fascinated by the uh, sounds and vibrations that I measure because I can convey them as a sound through speakers. And uh, she's always been very much uh, interested in, uh, in my measurements. So, yes, uh, we discuss uh, work together and uh, I love her work and she loves mine. And indeed, more recently, uh, we've been working together with uh, my interest in uh, honeybees. So, uh, amongst other things, uh, we have put bees in a cello with her back in 2014. And uh, this has been uh, the start of a long-term project where we have sustained uh, a colony of honeybees inside a real cello, starting from a, 
a child cello. I think uh, the technical term of it is a quarter cello. And we've moved on to a teenager cello. I can't remember the name of it. I think it's called three quarters, something like that. And for the last two years, I've kept uh, a colony of bees in a full-sized uh, cello, which I think is the appropriate volume, by the way, for, the, for a colony of honeybees. And I am delighted to say that for the first time ever, this year, I have sustained the colony uh, through the winter uh, more than uh, well. So this particular year, we have put a blanket on the cello this uh, winter, and I uh, removed the blanket uh, a bit more than a month ago when the temperature began to become decent in the UK. I discovered an enormous uh, colony inside the cello, so it stayed very, very large throughout the winter. And very early on, towards the, the beginning of April, they swarmed, and I've got a new queen and a new colony in the cello, so it's the first time I've, we've actually managed to sustain a colony through the winter, and they, they did extremely well uh, inside that uh, cello. And so my wife has played that particular cello with bees in. <laughs> uh, she'd be delighted to speak to you, and she'd be delighted to play her cello to you as well. Oh, yes, we please. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, indeed, uh, we work together with the honeybees now, and we have this project that... Uh, is keeping us going uh, together. It's giving us uh, tremendous satisfaction. But, but just tell me, Martin, before you go and get Deirdre, because that would be brilliant uh, to, to, to hear from her, but um, is this now in in the realm of science still and research, or are we now in the realms of art by the time you start putting bees in cellos and playing that cello? <laughs> uh, this uh, type of... Um, categorization doesn't interest me. I am, I am an enthusiastic person and I like to try things and I like to engage with things. I like to engage with honeybees. I like to engage with cellos, with science, with mass, anything uh, you like. So does it belong to science? Does it belong uh, to art? Uh, it is not something I worry uh, about. I love it. It gives me immense satisfaction. I recommend it uh, to everybody. And I recommend uh, you all not to worry whether what you do belongs to this or that. Enjoy life. Life is uh, an amazing gift uh, we have. Brilliant. Great. Well, whatever you, wherever you categorise it, I think you could, you could call it a mellow, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and... But do, do the bees appreciate it, uh, especially when it's played? So, uh, good question. One thing about the bee cello is uh, the amount of uh, things I've learned from it. So, one thing I've learned from the cello is that uh, whether I like it or not, I can't interfere with that colony. I never open the cello. The cello. I never get the honey. I never do beekeeping inspections with that cello, whether I like it or not. And one thing I've certainly noticed, and everybody's noticed it because it's been seen by a lot of people, is that you end up with incredibly docile bees that have never stung anybody at all. Children, adults, elderly can get extremely close to that cello. You can touch it. You can uh, watch it from a close vicinity. Nobody has ever got stung by this uh, colony. So certainly one thing I've learned with honeybee colonies is that... Uh, if you don't interfere with them, you can end up with unbelievably uh, docile creatures, very friendly animals that uh, don't uh, sting you. How do they react if the cello, when the cello is played? Is it still playable? I imagine, I imagine that the sound peg is muffled or, or something. But do, does it rile them, or do they, do they react in a, in a nice way to the vibrations from the strings or? What happens? Okay, so what we've seen is uh, the bees uh, becoming immobile. So it uh, it makes them frozen. It immobilizes them when you produce a vibration. It's it's actually a scientific discovery from 1946 by American scientists. Not with a cello, with uh, honeybees. They've shown that uh, driving vibrations into a hive will immobilise your bees. Martin, yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. There was, you reminded me, there was a woman, a, a scientist at Rothamsted Research who could sing in perfect pitch and her kind of party piece was to, was to sing in front of a kind of 10-frame observation hive on the wall in front of all the other staff 
uh, I can't remember, is it 50 or 500 hertz or some particular note? And all the bees would freeze on the frames. But it was at that particular particular note. Fantastic. That That's the very phenomenon. So you can, uh, you can immobilize bees by vibrations. And that woman must have been able to do it with her own voice. What an amazing coincidence. <laughs> and... Uh, what that's what's happening with the cello if you pluck a string all the bees uh, stop i've done it in my laboratory with artificial vibrations it's uh, an experiment which is good fun to do and uh, you can immobilize them for many minutes without causing any distress or aggressivity if you switch off the vibration the bees just get on with their normal life uh, afterwards so that's uh, a known phenomenon i wouldn't say well known but it's known and the same happens uh, with the cello and it doesn't cause uh, any aggressivity. And my interpretation of it is that uh, uh, they have bees have exquisitely sensitive vibration sensors, probably in their legs, and uh, a too strong vibration uh, makes the sensors saturated, a little bit like you going to a pop concert where the sound would be too loud and uh, your sensors would be saturated and I think that's what happens. Uh, perhaps this is why they, uh, they become immobilized. But to answer your question, the bees in the cello are doing very well and they are very friendly and they have never stung anyone. <laughs> and if, if you play it, they don't become aggressive. And I've got video footage of my wife playing that cello and nobody got stung. Great, great. A cello is a bit like a bee, isn't it? It's got a big spike coming off the bottom end and it's kind of, you know, that sort of a shape. <laughs> Uh, and if they get cold in the winter, you can just put them in the case, can't you? <laughs> so could you ask Deirdre to join us now, Martin? Let me, uh, let me grab her if you're yeah, ready for Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, Deirdre. Hello. Hi, Deirdre. Well, we just had this amazing description of the, of the bees in the cello and, and we're hearing about the fact that you play that cello. So we were just wondering about it from the bees' point of view and Martin was describing, you know, their reaction. But what, what does it feel like to you as a cellist? Is it completely different to a normal empty cello as well as cellos normally are, full of air? That's a really good question, absolutely, because the, the box of the cello is a resonating box. So if you fill it, and in this case it's full of wax um, and bees, then it doesn't resonate so well. So the sound is completely different, but it's not its not unpleasant. It's its really nice. And do you drone on the cello? <laughs> Sorry, that was a bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of bee jokes, definitely. Um, but since you mentioned the word drone, I don't know if Martin's already told you, but um, if you listen to the bees, and I'm sure you do quite a lot, um, you can you can hear that there's a particular pitch at which they we might call it a buzz or a drone. Have you already mentioned this, Martin? No, 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 go uh, for it. Um, and listening to recordings of Martin Martin's bees, I I suddenly noticed that this this pitch was actually a note C. Um, so yeah, if if you can imagine a a, a hive. I mean, if you keep bees, then you just need to stand next to it and you will hear one particular note. It's not a cacophony of different notes. And I reckon that's the C, which is quite interesting, because that is the bottom note on the cello. That's amazing. Can you play it for us? This C. Yes, exactly. Great. In, in ancient Indian, in ancient Indian mythology and, and religion and spirituality, they uh, well, one can learn that the universe is kind of humming in the key of C, in uh, you know the original Om and the the churning of the milk from the ocean of which everything was created, and uh, so that's that's fascinating sort of comparative. That's a mythology. brilliant connection. Mm. It's very easy. I'm obviously a musician, and it's very easy to say the key of C, but actually it's not. It's more, as you said, a drone. Um, sometimes I do hear a G, which would be the fifth above that. Um, but more or less, it's just these two notes. So you wouldn't necessarily get a B natural, for example. Um, so not all the notes in the key of C, but literally just a drone. Aha. Uh -huh. So it just is C, the note. 
which is which is interesting. So when you're playing your bead cello, do you just drone a, a C or do you sort of treat them to a bit of bark? I have treated them to a little bit of bark. It's a little bit awkward to play because they are obviously flying in and out. I don't know if you explained, Martin, but they they go in and out of the F holes, which are on the front of the cello. Did you say that? No, no, I didn't. Okay, yeah. so if you imagine um, a cello and when you look at it from onto the front of it, you can see the two, they're called F holes, but they actually look like the shape of an S. And this is where the Bs are going in and out. So um, I'm bowing the strings just above that point. <laughs> so I have to be careful. I don't want to squish anybody. Um, but no, I haven't been stung playing it. They're, they seem to like the music or they don't seem to mind me playing it. And, and, and I'm kind of, I don't want to say what's the point. I mean, obviously it's an amazing thing to do to sit and play a cello that's full of bees. But is Martin there kind of getting something from that in terms of the experimentation? Is he sort of recording their reaction and and all of that at the same time? Or, or is it just to, to just kind of go through that experience as an amazing thing that's, that's enough in itself? So perhaps I should answer that uh, because it was uh, uh, directed perhaps at me. The um, thing I was telling Chris is that uh, the cello has taught me a lot so originally, I was hoping for the strings of the cello to uh, be stimulated by the activity of the bees. I was hoping that uh, on a busy day, the cello would actually sing of its own because of the bees uh, <clears throat> stimulating the string. And uh, I was dreaming up all sorts of uh, physics uh, experiments and uh, applications for it. So some of the stuff has not worked. Uh, some of it uh, has worked, but certainly, I have learned a lot from the cello. So, for example, the lack of aggressivity. Uh, these bees are not interfered with and they're very docile. Another thing I've learned is the volume. There is an optimal volume for a honeybee colony. If you have uh, a pond and fish, the smaller your pond is, the smaller your fish. So you can tailor the pond size to the fish size and the bees do the same. And in my experience, uh, full-size cello is uh, roughly the correct volume for uh, a honeybee colony. And um, the strings of the cello never got uh, stimulated by the bees, except yeah, that on a, on a busy day, they actually collide with them. So that it's fun to be close to the beach on a very busy day. They forage uh, tensely <coughs> and they collide you, you and can, you hear you bing, bong, bong. Yeah. You can suddenly hear these strings being they accidentally, accidentally yeah. <laughs> Maybe, it, Maybe it's no accident. No, maybe they do actually play, play the cello, yeah, you know, indirectly. So what's next? I mean, will you put bees in a, in a, I don't know, some bagpipes or a <laughs> harpsichord? Or what, 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 what next? What is next? Do I want to do... Uh... Uh, more uh, instruments or more things like that. At the moment, I am not uh, thinking about it, but uh, I am happy to do more than more than one cello if if needed. It appears to pretty much op optimal. I think it's probably, to be honest, seriously, I think it's probably the optimal instrument to host a colony of honeybees in it. <laughs> to host yeah. bees in a musical instrument, I strongly recommend you go for a cello. Well, I was going to. <laughs> Surely the fact that it's made of wood also makes the difference. Also right? helps, well, yeah. The little uh, F-holes or S-holes for them to go in and out, they love that. They love to be conspicuous, yeah. not to be noticed. The volume is correct. It's a little bit difficult to stand up, so you need to, cr to come up with some way of standing up the cello. But otherwise, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a very, very good compromise for them. They obviously, they're, they're very happy in it. And I, I just yeah. wanted to answer a, a question that came earlier about how, what's it like for me to play it and um, it, it's actually I mean I w was surprised that it wasn't frightening because they are so timid and don't seem to mind um, but also I'm, I'm, I'm aware of I'm, I'm really aware of being in their world and it's so it's not really so much that I'm giving them a little concert and performing. It, it's just a part of their day, you know, like they've just put the radio on, but they're carrying on about the day, li listening to this music whilst they buzz off and come home again. 
Are you fully clad in a bee suit? I have been and I also haven't been, which, which you know, obviously you start off being a little bit worried, but um, I've, I've gained in confidence because they don't, they really don't attack. I mean, if you saw it, you would see that they are literally just carrying on as if I wasn't there. That must be an amazing experience because you are like, well, like we were saying about this, you know, the chanting, it's like being at one with with something. I mean, almost like a kind of meditative experience. Mm. Absolutely. And, and you know, um, I'm sure plenty of people have done other very similar things like playing with birdsong in the garden. Um, and and it's, it's you interacting, well, not really interacting, but uh, relating to what that, what that bird or what that bee is doing rather than imposing something on them. Um, you know, they, they're just carrying on, basically. Great. What a great relationship you have with your bees and your cello and that particular cello. So it's 10 minutes away from where you live and that's where Martin's bees are situated. And do people, like, stumble across it and think, look at that, there's a load of beehives and a cello? I mean, is it, is it accessible to the public or...? It's been recited last uh, summer. And uh, it is now in a private property, which is open every Wednesday afternoon. It's Home Pierpont Hall, it's called. It's an amazing, absolutely amazing property, uh, open to the public on a Wednesday afternoon. And um, I've managed to get the university to fund a bandstand for it, because obviously you don't want it in the rain. So the cello is under a beautiful little wooden bandstand. And uh, anybody can see it on a Wednesday afternoon after the corona crisis, that is. On a Wednesday afternoon, it's open to the public and you can come close to it and marvel at it uh, in this uh, private property. If you, if you look on the Home Pierpont um, Hall website, website yeah. you can see a whole load of information and some photographs. It's something, it's something extraordinary to be allowed to uh, do this because of uh, health and safety issues. So to have bees in a cello uh, comes with the risk of being stung. And for these people to have allowed me to uh, showcase it to the public is uh, an extraordinary thing uh, to achieve. We've done it uh, with uh, no paperwork. They just allowed it to be there. And it's, I'm so grateful to them to have these bees uh, open to the public. But uh, there is the risk of someone being stung. It's never happened, ever. But if someone wants to uh, repeat this project, you come with the issue of uh, bees potentially stinging people. It's been a, such a pleasure talking to you, um, Martin and Deirdre. Thank you. Um, you know, yeah, I would look forward to actually visiting and coming and seeing that cello in situ. It would be amazing. Come, come, and uh, we, will co we will take you to the cello. We will show it to you. And thank you for the excellent questions. And uh, thank you for your time as well. And uh, good luck with your uh, podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. You're a star and you're just... Uh, what you're doing, I think, is absolutely brilliant. And whether it's science or art or whatever it might be, it is. It's full of joy, it's full of interest and it's inspiring. So thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Uh, good speaking to you. Would you like to hear my wife uh, play you a tune? Yes, please. Would love that. Yes, please. I have to say yes, please. But the only purpose is, <laughs> the only point is, this tune is actually called Dance of the Honeybee. This is the Dance of the Honeybee. It's the traditional, I guess you would say, folk song. Um, and this is probably what I will play on the bee cello, since it yeah. is about yeah. honeybees. <laughs> Wonderful, delicious music. You can see the bees dancing, can't you? Hearing that playing. Thank you, Deirdre. Yeah. I just remember I, I met a woman 
last year who uh, a young artist woman who, who put bees in a piano i'd forgotten about that and, and uh, maybe we want to contact her for an interview at some point <laughs> i feel a whole mini series coming on <laughs> yes right they're not getting in my bagpipes i tell you <laughs> Patrick, you've got you must have yeah. something. <laughs> so, so, so. Oh, well, someone, someone else who's got you know, yeah, it's got to be something the right size, isn't it? It's got to be oh, I a harp, the, maybe yeah. a, 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 yeah. <laughs> a little bit exposed, perhaps. But I did, I did love the I love the way that you know, the cello. I love what you said, Chris, actually about the, the cello being like a bee with the with the spike, and it's true. I mean, and and, and the yeah. size of it, the size of it is about right for a for a colony of bees. Yeah. And uh, and then when she said. When we found out she played it as well, that's just I know, amazing. Amazing. I'm just dying to hear the, the actual sound of that B cello now. So, you know, we must go and we must visit. They're up in Nottinghamshire. We'll put the link to that um, place that you can go to on a Wednesday uh, when the world is back to, to, to relative normal. Um, and, and yeah, you can basically get up close to that B cello. So that was just fascinating. I think we should just all go and absorb all that sort of stuff that was shared. But, I mean, any particular yeah. revelations for you too as proper beekeepers about the sounds, about the piping and the... Oh, brilliant. I heard some pipe. Uh, the following day after recording that interview with Martin, I was at the apiary and I heard piping for the first time and it made it made me just thrilled, you know, just, just, just to hear that. Yeah. To hear that sound is just amazing. Yeah. Uh, and um, and the fact that there are these sounds going on in the hive that because I mean our ears are tuned to certain frequencies aren't they and we can't hear some above and below certain frequencies and there must be sounds and vibrations and things like that that we don't hear and we uh, and and all sorts of communication in other uh, species that live in the similar ways to to honeybees you know wasps there must be these things going on all the time uh, which is fascinating. It is, isn't it? Yeah, such such great, great avenue of research. Well, since that interview with Martin and Deirdre, we uh, did get in touch to ask if we could hear the actual bee cello played. Uh, but Martin wrote back to tell us that the colony in the cello had somehow recently become queenless uh, and had become a, a bit defensive. So um, he told us that after introducing a new queen, uh, maybe through one of the F-holes, uh, Martin told us that the colony became instantly calm again and uh, back to its former self. If you want to see the bee cello uh, in action actually being played by Deirdre, you can visit the episodes page of our website at uh, www.livingbeing.com. Um, and Martin and Deirdre instead kindly sent us this previous recording of the bee cello, complete with the noise of bees which we'll leave you with right now. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Please do uh, rate and subscribe. And our thanks to Martin Benchik and, of course, to Deirdre. See you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Farewell. Cheerio.